Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Hello, everybody. The episode of the Next Track you're about to hear was recorded in mid-June. Kirk and I were having one of our conversations, and we thought, hey, this is a good topic. We should just record it. So that's essentially what we did, and we figured... We'll just put it on the shelf, and when we want to take a week off, we can play that episode we recorded in mid-June. So, here it comes, and I also want to add that there will be an epilogue and an update to uh, what we talked about in June immediately following. So, listen for me again, telling you about the epilogue. Anyway, here's the episode. Hey, Doug, I can see a few CDs on your desk over there. What are you doing with CDs these days? You mean days? Uh, this pile of CDs right here? Yeah, those. That, that little pile um, of CDs. Well... I mean, uh, I, I'm testing some, some scripts for uh, the upcoming operating system for Big Sur, and I want to make sure that uh, that scripts I wrote that, that work with CDs still work. The one I'm particularly concerned with right now is uh, a thing called CD Text to CD Info, which enables you to access the, uh, the CD text information that may be included on a CD and then apply it to the tags in the music app so you don't have to use Gracenote, you can use... The uh, indigenous tag data, as it were. But why isn't that the norm? How come the music industry never adopted that as a way of including metadata with CDs all the time? Well, I think the music industry makes a lot of mistakes with new technology, and, and that was the one they made with, uh, with CDs. Because it would make sense if your CD player could display the name of what's playing, right? Yep, exactly. So, are you nostalgic for CDs? Because every once in a while, I have a certain nostalgia for those little plastic discs. And, and I remember the process, the, the quaint, almost analog process. You sit down, you open the jewel case, and then the top falls off because one of the hinges is broken. Then the CD falls out because the spiders in the middle holding it in have broken. And then you drop the CD, maybe the wrong side down, and you step on it. But then you eventually get into your CD player. And you can sit down and you can just enjoy for like an hour of music without having to get up and flip a record or without having to worry about, you know, changing something on the computer. That's true. And that's, I think people have grown past the hour of music. <laughs> they, it's like, I don't want to just listen to an hour of music. I want to listen to continuous music that's going to surprise me and delight me and that kind of thing. So CDs and albums, I know, I know our listeners really love that experience. I do too. But I haven't actually, I don't think I've played a CD. I did, a, I think I played a CD through recently just to see how good it sounded compared to files. And, you know, I run that experiment every so often just to see. And I can't really tell the difference. So, yeah. I still get CDs. Yeah. Just yesterday, Dave's Picks 34, volume 34, which is 62374 from the High Life Fronton in Miami, Florida. Great show, by the way. See, I think, I think CD is a great way to, to just, you know, it's a great medium. Um, you, you get it in the mail, you get a nice hard physical copy, you have it, you can play it, you can, you know, and I, I just don't understand why I'll, that's not the first choice, uh, when they, you know, that's, that should be your first choice, not streaming it, not buying it as a download because it's the most pristine copy that you can get. 
Well, there's no difference in the quality of the audio between a lossless download and a CD. Right. Well, like I just said, it's like I can't tell the difference. But no, as, well, as far there as is a no document, difference. but as far as like having a physical document, I would prefer the CD. I don't mind, right. you know. It, I mean, I used to have albums and, and record cassettes, too. The cassette was not a, it was just a, a, an adjunct to the record, just like a file is an adjunct to a CD. An adjunct? Is that the right word? Adjunct? Adjunct. Or, or adjunct. I don't adjunct. know. I don't know. It's associated. Know. It's, not, it's, not, it's the secondary thing. It's not the primary. Right. Right. C- CDs are interesting because what did they start in the 1980s, right? So the first CD, well, the first CD player I got is I worked in a job in Paris, I believe in 86, 87. And one of the people there, her husband worked for Philips. So I was able to get a CD player at a relative discount, which still made it a pretty expensive thing at the time. And I'm thinking it was like $300 at the time, you know, not $300 today. So it was pretty expensive. And I remember I went to anyone who knows France knows a chain called the FNAC, F-N-A-C. And I went there and I bought two CDs. And one of them was a Beethoven's Ninth. FNAC. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I was just trying to say it. I wanted to know how my face looked when I said FNAC. I know. I saw it on your face. <laughs> FNAC means Fédération Nationale d'Achat des Cadres. Okay. The National Purchasing Federation for Cadres, which is a classification above salary employees, like executive type people. It was originally a sort of a club. And it wasn't open to the public. And then it became a, a big chain, books, CDs, TVs, computers, etc. Have you ever heard a dog do a reverse sneeze? That's the sound <laughs> they make. It's fnack. <laughs> it's true. Okay. Anyway, so I bought two CDs. One of them was a Beethoven's Ninth on, I think, EMI, by conducted by Gunter Vond. The second was the Goldberg Variations by Trevor Pinnock. And I believe this was on Harmonia Mundi. And so... I was new to CDs, right? And I didn't know how they worked. The Beethoven's Ninth did fit on one CD, and it's, what, five movements, five tracks. But the Goldberg Variations maybe had six tracks on it out of the 32 different tracks of the Goldberg Variations. And they were all listed as indexes. Right. Do you remember that? Yes. The, um, the Red Book Standard said that you could only have 99 tracks on a CD, so, oh, we used to get these on sound effects records, too. You get um, sound effects CDs because there'd be hundreds of, of sound effects cues on these CDs, but there are only 99 tracks. So the way they got around it was to have these indexes where you could have, uh, within a track, there could be a number of subtracks that were indexed. Really difficult to use because most CD players that understood indexing didn't uh, really allow you to set it up very well. You'd have to have like this knob and the knob would roll through all the, the index numbers. And if you had 20, 30 indexes, it was impossible to find something and land on it with any precision. But it was an interesting way of getting around it. It's funny, though, they only had 99 tracks. Well, that must have been so the CD players could display the content. Maybe they didn't have three digits for the track number in the CD. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. They wanted to save. There was Rather than have, they didn't want to use three digits for some reason or another. Maybe it had something to do with storage or display or who knows. Or maybe they just thought, hey, 99 is good enough. So while you were talking there, I was looking up on Discogs, and I was wrong. It wasn't Trevor Pinnock. It was Kenneth Gilbert. And the listing is there with 12 tracks. So the first area is the first track. Track number two is variations one to four, et cetera, et cetera. 
And this, it doesn't even, uh, Discogs generally has good release information, but this one, all it says is release 1986. It doesn't give any additional information. So, but yeah, uh, I still have this CD and I should actually go and play it and see, first of all, if it still plays. And second of all, just to look at the thing with only 12 tracks. Yeah, but why, <laughs> but why wouldn't it play? I mean, you know. You never heard about CD bronzing? No. Bronzing, no. Ah, well, in the early days of CD, so uh, this was, C- CD started, what, 82, 83, yeah, 84, around there. They were and so at the end of the 80s and the early 90s, there were a bunch of CDs that were made in a specific plant in the UK that in just a few years sort of turned like a bronze color. And this altered the surface the plastic surface so the laser couldn't play the music. Oh, I see. So and you couldn't it, play it, anything? I mean, they were completely useless? No, I think you would get noise when you played them in uh, different places. And a lot of labels were affected by this, and a lot of labels had to get CDs repressed and make exchanges with um, with customers. How long did this go on? It seems that this was first discovered, according to Wikipedia, it was first discovered in 94, some bronze CDs were already reported as unreadable in the mid-90s, where others were still playing as recently as 2012. So I think they were deteriorating at different paces. It might have had something to do with how they were stored. Different types of plastic might have given off chemicals that would do something to the CD. It's the only actual case that I know of of, of a massive incidence of bad CDs. You know, you occasionally get a CD that has a pop or a click, but I've never heard of like CDs going bad other than this. Yeah, because I, I would think they'd be quite reliable. Like I was saying, I mean, I mean, I really prefer them as the you know the the medium of record um, for music. But um, I, I'd never heard the bronzing thing. I'm, I'm actually surprised. How aren't CDs supposed to last like what fifty years, sixty years, something like that? We don't even I, know. We haven't tested it yet. Well, we, we they haven't been around long enough. Yeah. If we assume what early eighties, we're, we're thirty five years. And CDs really hit their peak in the 90s. So yeah. I think the number of CDs sold in the 80s is probably quite low. Yeah. You know, before a lot of people had, before cars had CD players. That's probably what made the big difference when they finally got rid of the 8-track players and put CD players in cars. Yeah, yeah well, I mean, CD, CD players were, uh, you know, not even, they weren't optional. They, they came as standard equipment. I don't think eight tracks. Did you ever did. have any of those mini CD singles? No, no. I never had any of them. I've, I, you, you know, if you look a at a CD player, didn't you? Isn't that well, but no. If you look at a CD player that has a, a drawer or a tray, you'll note that there's an inset for a single in it. Usually, yeah, yeah. You can't put it in a slot loading CD player, obviously. So you couldn't put it in a car. And I'm wondering if there wasn't a sort of a thing you could stick the single in to put it into a slot loader. That's what I mean. Some kind of like tray you would put it in. You'd keep it in the tray. Like you used to keep the spindles in a 45. You'd keep the CD in a tray. Well, I don't know. I never had any. I mean, the idea of making a mini CD didn't seem to make sense because it didn't cost any less to have a smaller CD and it just made it more complicated. Yeah, ultimately. So these mini CDs were eight centimeters compared to a normal CD that's 15 centimeters. They apparently, there's a standard in the red book for the term CD single is an eight centimeter. It now refers to any single recorded onto a CD of any size. But the idea of, see, that's the thing. You'd pay a buck or whatever for a CD single and there'd be 
eight minutes of music on it, think, well, why did I buy this whole CD and it's not full of music? <laughs> and so no matter how they did it, yeah. it, I wonder it if those felt are... like a scam. If it was a mini CD, it was hard to... Because to, the mini CDs, did they come in little mini sleeves? I don't remember. Oh, they must have. Or no, they couldn't have because they would have had to have been marketed alongside of CDs in the racks. So they would have had to have had same shape boxes. Well, right? maybe they slipped into those big anti-theft plastic things yeah, yeah. that they put in. That's, uh, oh, yeah, you're right. I, they, I, mean, I don't know. I've never seen them. Do they, are they used for data anywhere? Have you ever heard of that? Well, I don't know. I don't think I've ever um, seen I a mini. Technically, you could, but I've never seen one. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing that you might have seen like AOL sending them out yeah. back in the day. Well, it also <laughs> sounds like something CDs. you'd see on, a, like, on, somebody would say, and... We preserve. We we make it easier to manage your data because we use these mini CD trays or something. I can just see it as somebody using it as an exper as a marketing experiment to see if it works. I never heard of mini CD. Okay. Do Do you know what the first CD single was? No. According to Wikipedia, it was Dire Straits' "Brothers in Arms." It was huh. issued as a promotional item. Promotional, four tracks, limited right. print one. The first commercially released CD single was "Angeline" by John Martin. February 1, 1986. Never heard of him. I've heard of John Martin. I think he's a folk singer, but... Okay. So, the mini CD single CD3 format was created for singles in the late 1980s, but met with limited success, particularly in the U.S. That's just what I was saying. They were saying. more successful in Japan. Kind of not surprising, right. because the Japanese are really into alternate formats. They had a resurgence in Europe, and I like this term used in Wikipedia early this century, <laughs> marked as POC it CDs, P-O-C-K-I-T, pocket it, small enough to fit in a shirt pocket. Thing is, you still needed a CD player that wasn't going to fit in your shirt pocket, so. <laughs> <laughs> you can carry them all around all day, but you're never going to hear them. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I never heard of the small CDs. I, it, I mean, I remember, um, you know, they, they tried to make 10-inch uh, uh, EPs in this country a big thing, and that never worked. And so I'm not surprised that a smaller CD also didn't work. Plus the fact that you needed an extra hardware to play it. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. I think 10-inch EPs were really big in, in Jamaica for reggae for some reason, which might be why The Clash did their black market Clash as a 10-inch EP. 10-inch EPs weren't that uncommon back in the day. I still have a few, but there were not, you didn't see a lot of them. Yeah, there was a, um, there were, uh, CBS marketed, there, I know the only reason I remember this is because I was fascinated with them in college. CBS marketed them as new discs, and the ones I remember oh, right, that, N-U discs. Yeah, right. Yeah. Nina Hagen had one, and that's how she got a lot of college radio airplay in this country. Squeeze put out one called Six Songs Squeezed. I can't remember any other ones, but there were several of new discs. They're by artists that are no longer around, I'm sure. So I've still got lots of CDs, actually. I've got... Big box sets of CDs, and that's still the advantage of having the classical sets, the, the Bach, the Mozart, the Beethoven that I have. I'll put links in the show notes. These are still available. I think the Mozart came out three years ago, Bach two years ago, and Beethoven last year. It might have been six, four, and two years ago. I kind of think these are going to be the last big box sets because all of the Beethoven is available on the streaming services. Only parts of the Bach and Mozart are. Who's going to want to keep buying these boxes of CDs? And how do you even play them anymore? If most people, 
you know, at best they have a Bluetooth speaker and a phone. You can't, yeah. you can't put the phone. Okay. Here's what would be good. You put QR codes on the CD sleeve and you take a picture with your phone and you can stream it somehow. <laughs> or you, you know what I wanted back in the day? That would be pretty good. Actually. You know how iTunes match can match tracks, right? And, and now the, the Apple music in the cloud can match tracks. So you don't have to necessarily upload them. I wanted a way that they could match full CDs. So you could stick your CD into your the drive connected to your computer. The app recognizes, says, yes, we got that CD. You want to dump it into your library. Boom. So instead of having to rip all the CDs, you could get all the music if the CDs were just matched. You know, I would think they could do that because they have GraceNote. So GraceNote is able to track what CD you're playing. And even if there's a, an ambiguity, they can still say, do you mean this CD? And it's, you know, you could do, it could be done. Well, funny you, funny you mentioned that. Um, I have a screenshot that I took back in 2017, and I've kept it because I found this really interesting. It was a recording of something by John Cage. I think it's just a single track. So when I put it into iTunes at the time, it showed a window, CD lookup re results. So you're going to choose which one it is. It starts with Bow by Dr. T, then two different tracks by John Cage of Atlas Ellipticalis. It also gives me options for, let's see, Manteniendo al Avivamiento de Dina Santa Maria, Hip Life High Best One by Ghana Man, Sessions by Miguel Vizcano, TC Carson Live at Triad Disc 3, Limelight Classics Jr., Session to Goa, DJ, and In the Mics by DJ Sun. That was all because it was a single track long. The DJ things are interesting because DJ mixes are released as single tracks on CDs. Yes. And it's not just the duration. It's actually the number of frames in the music. So it's, it's not just minutes and seconds. It's even more precise than that. Yet, so if I got, you know, eight or nine different results from one CD, this doesn't happen often when there's multiple tracks. But if there's just a single track, does that mean you put the CD in and it's going to match the first one? You say, sure, I got that. Download it. Then you match the second one, download that. So, <laughs> yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yes, but <laughs> yes, but the Venn diagram of, of people who want every one of those unusually not related to any similarity at all yeah. tracks and the yeah. so you know, but still you're right, absolutely. That's but that's true. You know, you could get yeah. more than you paid for. But but what I think would be even better is if we could use a QR code or something. Yeah, that you bought this CD, this box set, whatever QR code, go to your streaming service, add it to your library. Boom. Yeah, I'm surprised they don't do that. I mean, that doesn't sound what would what would the record companies object to about that? Just the fact that we're not buying it again. Is that the only reason? Well, if you were getting it off, say, Apple Music, you you weren't matching tracks that you have. It would just add it yes. to your library. Yes. Right. That's right. So you wouldn't be getting anything free. It would just be a quick way of adding it to your library without having to search for everything. Yeah. Actually, that's a pretty good idea. It's kind of a shame that they haven't tried to bridge that gap between the CD and the digital file, making it easier for people to, to get stuff. Of course, then you can imagine that you'd be downloading QR codes off of BitTorrent sites and just taking photos of QR codes that people would share. Yeah. Well, yeah. You've already <laughs> thought of a way of defeating it. So, I mean, there must be many other ways of doing it. I was thinking, too, that... Um, um, why would record companies want to do that? It's still, 
You know, I, they yeah. mentioned that they'd veto that. I would. It's like, well, they're still getting something for free. So they're marketing these big box sets to a very limited audience, and maybe more people would buy them if they knew that they could get all the music organized in the streaming service. They'd be happy to pay for the set to have the liner notes and, and the biographies. And, and these big classical sets have, you know, extensive liner notes. They'd be happy to pay for the set if there was an easier way to get the music in their libraries. But Sure. All right. Should we do some next tracks? Whoa, 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 whoa. So remember that epilogue I was telling you about? Well, this is the epilogue part. Shortly after this recording was made, obviously about CDs, kind of put a, a seed in my head. What I might like to do is maybe pull out 40 or 50 CDs out of my closet that were, you know, definitive albums, albums that I would put on as a CD and listen all the way through. None of these promo records that I have, none of these CD singles, nothing that wasn't a, a 100% good throw it on and listen to it all the way through. So with that in mind, I said, well, um, why do I want to play CDs through my computer? I mean, back in the day, when I had a CD player, I would never have thought of playing my CD uh, any CDs through my computer. It didn't make any sense. It wasn't hooked up to the audio and all that. So um, I thought it was kind of odd that I, I, it was like a reverse thing where it's, I'm going to start listening to CDs specifically because they're CDs. I want to hear how good they are. I want the experience, the, uh, the tea ceremony, as they say. Um, so I, I went shopping for a, uh, a good CD player. But then I thought if I'm going to get a CD player, I might as well make it a CD transport. That is, I'll just use the hardware of the device to spin the, the disc and I'll take an optical out from it and plug it into my receiver. Well, the problem with that is I don't have a receiver with optical ends. So I searched around looking for a, any kind of consumer level receiver that would that had multiple optical inputs, because I figured I could do everything with optical digital inputs. Well, the only thing I found was an AVR receiver from, from Denon. It, had, uh, it has two optical inputs and a coax input, which would allow me to plug at least a couple of things in. And maybe if I got a splitter, I could put uh, multiple digital inputs into it. What ended up happening was I bought the NAD C538 CD player, which has an, a coax out. So I'm able to get the digital signal directly from the CD into the receiver, direct digital, and then out to the speakers. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. I don't have a lot of stuff between the CD and the speakers. I just have the transport and the receiver, and that's it. So I'm pretty happy with that. The sound is great. I'm really enjoying uh, you know, the idea of maybe I'll play a CD today. I still love streaming. I still love my files, of course, because I've been accumulating those for years. But the idea of having a... a a special moment with a uh, with a special piece of music, it, it, you can still do that with the CD. I'm here to report. So anyway, uh, what was it we were doing before? Should we do some next tracks? Go, man, go. Okay, well, I'm going to pick a CD that I have here that I haven't opened yet. I got it a couple months ago. It's still in the cellophane wrapping. It is the Daruti column, Vinnie Riley. Now, Vinnie Riley is the musician behind the Daruti column, and in 1989, he released a record called Vinnie Riley under the name Daruti Kaum. There's a reissue of this that came out just a couple of months ago. It contains the original album, the 13 tracks on the Vinnie Riley album. It contains four tracks from a WOMAD live recording. Remember WOMAD? That was that world music festival that Peter Gabriel did. And then it's got a disc of demos and outtakes 
Some of these demos and outtakes have circulated on various releases, and some of them haven't. So it's the kind of thing that's like for, you know, completists. The Womad Live recording is really good, and it's something that wasn't widely available. In fact, I have that technically as a CD single in a cardboard sleeve. It's four tracks less than 20 minutes. So would you call that a CD single EP? Anyway, I haven't listened to this, and I haven't ripped it yet, and I think I'm going to do that today. What about you, Doug? Okay, so here's what's cool about this episode of the podcast, and that's that my next track pick is still part of my epilogue recording. So you probably want to know what the first CD was that I played in my new CD player. (laughs) I thought that'd be a good pick. And it's not anything special at all. It just happened to be sitting at the top of a a bunch that I took out. And I said, oh, I'd like to hear that. I played disc one of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by the Smashing Pumpkins. Now... I did not like the Smashing Pumpkins when they first came out. What was it? Siamese Dream? Is that the first album? Oh, oh, that's the first album that uh, that got a lot of radio airplay. And I didn't really care for them. I thought Actually, I thought they were kind of humdrum. But um, in 1995, I started working at an alternative radio station. And in 1995, the Smashing Pumpkins released this album. And virtually every other song on it was played that summer and into the next year by every alternative station in the country. So I'm really familiar with this record, I mean, I think the big hit everybody knows is Bullet with Butterfly Wings, but it's got Tonight Tonight, it's got Jelly Belly, Zero, uh, Muzzle, uh, 1979. Uh, I really like the guitar sounds on here, the electric guitar sounds. I don't like the lighter stuff or the, or the depressingly moany, awful, crappy stuff. Oops, said that part out loud. But I do like the sound of this album. Uh, the compressed electric guitars and a lot of the heavier things I think sounds really cool. And I I think was rather innovative. A lot of people have borrowed from it. I'm not a big Smashing Pumpkins fan, but working at the alternative radio station, you got a lot of stuff for free. In fact, when I opened this disc up, it says, License, this CD is property of record company and must be returned on demand. Well, they can come by and pry it from my cold, dead hands if they want. Anyway, that's my next track. The Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. This was episode number 190 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free, self-sustaining, so it's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.